welcome to a history of the north. Today we are discussing Sweden. That was Du Gamla Du Fria, the national anthem of Sweden, in a slightly pop-folk version. The title means You Old, You Free, which I guess is a nice thing to say about a country, and in the case of Sweden, I would say that it is largely a fair assessment. In this episode, we begin our voyage through the history of Sweden. Sweden is physically a very long country, just like Norway. It spans from the Öresund Strait, also simply called the Sound in English, and Sweden's eastern coast follows the Baltic Sea all the way up to the point where it rounds to the east and meets Finland. Sweden is basically one big forest. Of course, in recent centuries, it has largely become a farmland, just like the rest of the world. But there is still quite a lot of trees in Sweden. In the south, it is covered by forests of broad-leaved beech, common to northern Europe in general. And in the north, it is covered by coniferous trees, Christmas trees, if you will, tying it to the taiga, the scarf of pine and spruce trees that stretches around the world through Scandinavia, Russia and Canada. The climate of Sweden is quite mild largely protected from the Atlantic Ocean by Norway and the long strip of mountains that run along the border of the two countries, called Fjell, or similar in the Scandinavian languages, and Fjell in English. But I do not really like that word, to be honest. Anyway, the climate does change quite dramatically from south to north, as Sweden is 1,500 kilometers, almost as long as the distance from the northern to the southern border of the United States. In the north, as in Finland and Norway, the winters bring heavy snowfall and a portion of land being north of the polar circle, complete round-the-clock darkness. The summers in the north bring midnight sun and surprisingly warm days. Of course, what makes a country is not the nature, but the people. So let's turn to the arrival of humans in Sweden. The first humans to arrive in Sweden came primarily through Denmark, traveling across Öresund some 12,000 years ago. They settled in the south of Sweden, where they lived off of hunting and fishing. Reindeer seems to have been a popular source of food, which might have stimulated a natural migration north for people, as reindeer are, of course, migratory, wandering in large circuits to and from Sweden and Finland. In order to hunt these reindeer, the hunters obviously had to follow the reindeer along their circuit. As with most early civilizations, although early in Scandinavia is quite a bit later than, say, in China, Swedish civilization sprang up near water, which meant the Baltic Sea and Øresund. Water meant ease of travel, ease of trade and ease of development. Around 1500 BC, Swedish settlements around the coasts were involved with surprisingly far-reaching European trading networks. Bronze was introduced into the country around this period, thus starting the Bronze Age, 
Not by homegrown industry, but by bartering with southern bronze exporters. Bronze was used for weapons and tools, but was also used for jewelry and decorations, as possessing this foreign material signified power and wealth. Now, bronze was cool and all, but around 500 BC it was replaced by a hip new metal, iron. Celtic tribes brought iron with them from the south across the Baltic Sea. Iron was the greatest thing ever. Bronze was nice, but it was not very durable. Tools would bend or break rather quickly, which was annoying. Iron was much stronger, made better weapons and better tools. So was the Iron Age a golden age for the later to be Swedes? Well, no. The climate became quite cold in the centuries around the supposed birth of Jesus, and this predictably made life quite hard for the people in Sweden. But it also put quite a damper on trade, which was essential for the survival of Swedish society that relied on imports of, among other things, iron. Nearing the zenith of the Western Roman Empire, around 400 AD, Sweden began to trade more with this empire yet again. This was largely due to the fact that many Germanic tribes had migrated north into Sweden. Remember the Celtic tribes from around 1000 years earlier? They kept coming. These tribes had good contacts with southern parts of the European trade network, and trade was on the upswing again in the very early Middle Ages. What really turned Sweden into something like a centralized state was trade with the East. Across the Baltic, Sweden had contact with the Russian river routes that stretched very far inland, all the way to the Black and Caspian Seas. One eyebrow-raising result of these eastern trade routes is a small Buddhist statue that has traveled all the way from India to Stockholm. This trade fueled tribal chiefs and warlords in their conflicts and contributed hugely to a consolidation of power. With whom exactly this power was consolidated is a bit difficult to say. As with the other northern countries, almost no written records have been found in Sweden before the year 1000. The written records about Sweden that are earlier than this are written by other people in other places writing about Sweden. Which means that they are more difficult to trust. It is thought that Sweden probably had two major tribes. The Sveas and the Goths. They split the area around the south of Stockholm. The Sveas to the north and the Goths to the way south. It is however difficult to say really how large the areas that these tribes controlled really were. In Upland, which is the area just north of Stockholm, a political assembly existed, like a primitive senate called Disartinget. Here, the smaller areas in Upland were knit together by politics and religion. By the end of the Iron Age, the political entity of the Sveas also stretched across the small islands off of Upland and onto the coast of Finland. These are the coastal settlers that would run into the inland hunter-gatherers of Finland that we met in the early Finland series. Apart from the trade with the east, the Sveas were also bolstered by a markedly increase in gold imports, 
which quite possibly was plundered by their southern neighbors, the Goths, whose economic downturn in this period mirrors the rise of the spheres to a point where you start to think that it was probably not a coincidence. Around the year 1000 AD, we finally get to a verifiable, formal, acknowledged king, ruling both the areas of the spheres and the Goths. Enter King Olaf Eriksson Skutkonung. In Swedish, konung literally means king. The reason for the skut part is a bit dimmer. Skut means lap, as in come and sit on my lap, which might refer to him being born through a C-section. Another explanation is that it is a corruption of the word skat, which means tax. There are a lot of speculative explanations, but I think that the latter makes the most sense. Olaf Eriksson was a king who ruled through some form of taxation, meaning that he had a kingdom and not just a roving band of warriors, and therefore he might very well have been known as the Tax King. Nevertheless, Olaf Eriksson's kingdom was the basis of a unified Swedish state. Although this kingdom did in no way cover the entire area that we today know as Sweden. In the north, Sami people settlements, both inland and around the northern coastline of the Baltic Sea, were completely unrelated to the early Swedish kingdom. These people lived autonomously until around the end of the 13th century. But at any rate, around the turn of the first millennia AD, we see an early Swedish state and we can kick off the Middle Ages proper. If you were to break down what made a typical European state what it was, it would be three things. First, centralization of power, as in a king who controlled the whole country, rather than local warlords fighting each other. The centralization of power meant that the citizens, or rather subjects, of a given state would be relatively safe from harm within their own borders. No rival chieftain would burn their village, no bands of raiders would roam the countryside. Which were two scenarios that were very much a possibility during the early Viking Age. This process of centralizing power is also called monopolizing violence as the state gets a monopoly on using violence within its borders. Of course, violence could still happen, but it would be state-mandated violence. This meant that the medieval states had a degree of stability that had not been seen in earlier centuries, especially in the north, as Scandinavia never had a Roman Empire similar to enforce peace and stability. The second thing that characterizes a typical medieval European kingdom is just that, it is a kingdom. The controller of the centralized power is a king with a dynasty and hereditary rule. The dynastic model brought two things to the table. First of all, it stabilized the succession of power. Countries with no plan for succession would quickly fall apart whenever a leader died no matter how big an empire they had or how strong a leader they were. An example of this could be the short-lived empire of Alexander the Great, because the plans for succession were unclear and had no system of enforcing these plans, and so his vast empire fell apart quickly after he died. 
So, Dynasty, it secures that power is stable even after a ruler dies. The other thing that a dynasty brings to the table is a royal family. Obviously, there has to be someone to pass the power on to, and this become a great opportunity to get to know your neighbors. I doubt that the royal families of the Middle Ages had any real concept of inbreeding, but royal marriages with other powers were heavily sought after. Since power was hereditary, intermarriage with other royal families might consolidate power across states, or at any rate, cement alliances. Of course, royal families vying for the same throne was often a source of conflict in medieval Europe. The Hundred Years' War between England and France is an example of a series of conflicts in this genre. Using royal marriages as a means for diplomacy was a strategy used by the Austrian House of Habsburg. Habsburg was a family that seemed to start out of nothing around year 1000, who were extremely effective at making the right royal marriages. And 500 years later, they would be sitting on many thrones in Europe, including Spain, Hungary, the Netherlands, and be in control of the Holy Roman Empire that covered modern-day Germany and Italy. In order to keep power, the Habsburgs would habitually marry into their own family, which of course led to inbreeding and inbreeding byproducts, such as hemophilia, the condition where your blood does not coalesce and therefore you can bleed out from a paper cut, and the very famous Habsburg chin. Quite a lot of European monarchs of the later Middle Ages have a very distinct chin. Try googling it, the Habsburg chin. So, anyway, dynasties meant that power was both kept in the family and involved with other families abroad, laying the foundation for long-lasting diplomatic relations. The last thing that characterized the medieval kingdoms was Christianity. Being Christian was basically what defined one as being European. And sharing Christianity meant that European kingdoms, to a large extent, had the same philosophical foundations, the same ideas about what a person was worth, how society should look like, and who you could justify going to war with. Christianity also meant that you could access the knowledge of the church. Today, Christianity is not exactly thought of as the most progressive institution in the world, but in the Middle Ages, the church had one advantage that almost nobody else had. Writing. The clergy could often read, and they would share information across borders and across centuries, which was very unusual for most people. The church was like a hybrid between Wikipedia and Tesla. Do you want to know everything there is to know about the dynasties of Europe? Or perhaps how the world was made? Well, we have a thousand years of sources right here. Or do we want to harvest wheat more efficiently? Or engineer a more stable house? We have this here invention for that. And of course, since everyone was Christian, being a Christian also meant that you became part of a club. You learned a language, so to speak where you could speak with other Christian rulers. The access to knowledge and the access to other rulers were probably the two main reasons that the Northern Kingdoms were lured into the realm of Christianity. Upon adopting Christianity, the Northern Kingdoms managed to blend it with the Norse mythology, rather than having Christianity depose their religion from one day to the other. This meant that, even today, 
Nordic mythology is quite well known and often used in culture. There's barely anybody who actually worships the old gods today though, and those that do are part of a sort of New Age Norse mythology awakening from the last few decades. Okay, that was a little digression. But I find it helpful to try to define some of these central characteristics that are relevant to the early and medieval Swedish state. Anyway, back to Erik Skytkonum. Skytkonum was not just the first king of a large part of Sweden, he was also the first Christian king. The fact that he is considered the first king of Sweden probably has something to do with the fact that the people who wrote stuff down at the time were Christians, and as such were probably not inclined to count a heathen king, even if that king had the same power as Skytkonum. During Skytkonum's reign, he made a deal, a sort of mutual respect situations with the pagans of Sweden. Probably because, as the first king, he did not yet have the power to simply enforce his demands. The coexistence of paganism and Christianity was not always a given. One of Erik Skytkonum's successors, Inge the Elder, who ruled around the 1080s, tried to enforce the superiority of Christianity by outlawing the traditional sacrifices in the core region of Uppsala. This sparked an angry public reaction and Inge was eventually forced into exile. Then Inge's brother-in-law, Blotzwein, was elected as king, on the basis that he promised to allow the sacrifices to continue. However, Inge snuck back into Sweden and, after three years, found out where Blotzwein was living, and then he set fire to his hall and killed him. And thus, after exile and regicide, Inge the Elder completed the Christianization of Sweden. Or rather, he showed that Christianity was to be the stronger religion, but it would continue to be a mix of religions for a while. While a lot of people generally supported the introduction of the new religion, Norse mythology was ingrained in early Swedish culture, in very practical ways. For instance, many legal processes at the time had a basis in Norse rituals, and people saw no reason for that to change. Overall, it seemed that for at least a century, the Swedish opinion on religion swung back and forth like a pendulum between old and new. We have now reached the point where Sweden has become a somewhat stable and Christian state. Let's hold here for now. Next time, we will touch upon a warlike merchant league, early Swedish conquests, and a certain Mesa, who would, fueled by vengeance, change the history of the North. Thanks for now. Talk to you later.